Good morning, Woodland Hills. It is so good to see everybody. I, I thought, I thought January 4th, or I'm sorry, July 4th weekend, having traumatic flashbacks. Uh, I, I thought 4th of July weekend, I thought it would just be Mary and my mom here. I thought, that, but look how many people are here. This is great. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us online. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here. I'm also a comedy consultant and a cookie critic. Uh, was, I have many roles, many roles here. Uh, we are in a series called Cross-Examination, and uh, Emily suggested, you know, we should probably explain the name of this series at some point. And so I said, all right, I'll, I'll do that, because I, I thought it was pretty obvious how cross-examination applies to this, uh, but maybe not. So I just want to tell you really quick, cross-examination, you know, in court, cross-examination is one of the ways in which people make judgments about witnesses. And so there's like judgment as part of cross-examination. But also, uh, we believe that we should look at everything through the lens of Christ on the cross. So we should examine everything through the lens of the cross. So you've got that judgment component, and then you've got that cross component. And I just think cross-examination is such a brilliant title for this series because this series is about judgment and looking at one another through the lens of Christ on the cross. And so that's the explanation for the, the name cross-examination uh, for this series. Last week, Cedric did a little one-off where uh, he left. Yeah, it was a great sermon. He left the cross-examination series. But as you saw, it was very related to this judgment series that we're doing. In fact, I'm going to refer back to Cedric's sermon a couple times in my sermon here just because it's so related. Uh, and, and so for me, I want to get back to the judgment series. Uh, and we've said a lot about judgment already. We've talked a lot about, you know, that Jesus warns us not to judge others. And we looked at how judgment is the opposite of love and, and how um, uh, judgment really sort of um, opposes love in its kind of fundamental way. And we've looked at how our actions of judgment our love and our judgment towards others. We've looked at that, and, and we've looked at that sort of that outward sort of like me judging you, and, and we've examined that. What I want to do today is sort of go the other direction, and I want to ask the question, what do we do when we are judged? What do we do when people judge us? And so what I want to do is I want to look at this in three kind of, this is the outline of the sermon, and I don't ever do this, and I'm kind of experimenting with this. We'll see how it goes. But the outline of the sermon is this. The first part, I'm going to look at the world's solution to what we do when we're judged. The second part, I'm going to look at what God proposes we do when we are judged. And then the third part is I'm going to offer a couple takeaways. Does that sound good? All right. So, judgment. You will be judged. <laughs> it's going to happen. People are going to judge you, uh, especially now. I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line recently, someone dumped a whole lot of lighter fluid on our culture war. And it is just crazy right now. There is, it's like people are drunk and hysterical about judging one another, about attacking and trying to humiliate their opponents and uh, trying to deplatform people. And it's just a frenzy right now. And, and so judgment's going to happen. And so what do we do when people judge us? Do we, uh, do we judge back? Well, no, we've been talking about how that's not what Jesus wants us to do. So do we um, put up our fists and fight? Well... You know, we, we can't do that either. We're pacifists. We're, we're Anabaptists, so that's not an option. Uh, do we fall apart and throw a tantrum in Starbucks? No, that, that, that doesn't work either, and now Starbucks doesn't want me back, so I, I don't, that's not a good option. Uh, do we get indignant and get offended? 
Well, I'll say this. I'm just going to cut to the chase. I'm going to tell you the answer right now. I think, in fact, I think getting to the point is a neglected gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to do. I'm going to get to the point. This is, this is what I think the Bible says. I think the Bible emphatically tells us that we respond to judgment by being resilient to it. We should be resilient to judgment. And now what does that mean? Because the world also tells us that we should be resilient. And resiliency is sort of a popular sort of self-help word. And uh, if you read any psychology, they'll talk about the importance of resilience. And, uh, and I think that a lot of those kind of writings that you read, they say a lot of good things about resilience. But my sense about resilience in the world is very different, I think, than what God wants us to do. And so, for instance, what I've noticed is I've looked at people's strategies to be resilient, to be able to stand up to things, is that the world, a lot of times, tends to revolve their resilience around this assumption of not having to care. And what I mean by that is that you'll hear people, they'll say things like, if I have enough money, or if I have enough power, or if I have enough status, well, then I don't have to care what you say about me. And that's sort of like a a power-hungry, sort of a a self-sufficiency type of resiliency. Or another type of I don't care is more lazy and apathetic. And this one says, you can't hurt me if I don't care about you. And so you'll hear people in this camp say things like, I have zero Fs to give. They'll they'll say stuff like that. And and those are both types of resilience, and it's true. Uh, Those are ways that you can um, buffer yourself from the pains of judgment. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost because in order to do that where you don't care about others, where you try to overpower others, you lose out on the sensitivity and the compassion that's required for relationships. It's a really big cost to pay just to protect yourself from judgment. I think, as per typical, the resiliency that God is calling us to is much different than the resiliency that the world offers. I think that God is calling us to a resiliency that's not apathetic, it's not power-hungry, it's not numb, uh, it's not controlling. The resiliency that God is calling us to is strong, but it's not hard it's not hard-hearted. It's, uh, uh, in this resiliency, when we're resilient the way that God wants us to be, we, we remain unaffected by judgment, but we don't become unaffected. I thought that was really clever. <laughs> it, it works better on paper when you can see the E and the A. <laughs> the, the other thing, too, is I've noticed um, people, people don't know the difference between affect and affect, and that ruins my joke, too, and so... <laughs> This is why I can't be a comedian. Uh, But let me just explain what I mean by that. The point is this. When we get all of our life from Christ, judgment cannot hurt us. It cannot harm us. It can hurt us, but it can't harm us. It can't damage us. It can hurt our feelings, but it can't hurt that precious thing inside. When we get all of our life from Christ, that means we recognize that we are loved with an unsurpassable love, and we can carry that love in our heart, and that love is precious, and it is immune to anything that judgment can do uh, in the world. So we don't have to fear judgment. That is, we can remain unaffected by judgment. But at the same time, when we're secured in Christ, a judgment can also be an opportunity for us. When we're secured in Christ, but we're also seeking God, and when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, if judgments come, we can sift through the hostility of judgment, and we can maybe even find useful truths there. 
Because what I found is a lot of times our enemies know us really well. <laughs> and a lot of times there's good stuff in their judgments. I mean, hey, look, we all want to be more Christ-like. And it's a long ways between here and Christ-likeness. And I'll take any help I can get. And so if a person judges me, they may intend to belittle me. They may intend to humiliate me. They may be trying to put me in my place. That's, that's their business between them and God. I am secured in the love of Christ. I don't have to worry about being belittled because I'm, I know I'm, I don't know if this is a word, I'm unbelittleable. I'm unbelittleable. And so I don't have to worry about that. And I can just look for truths in that hostility. That's power. That's a real power to be able to stand up to judgment and somehow come out ahead. <laughs> Isn't that great? And that's what God is calling us to. I'm secured in God's unsurpassable love for me. I can receive judgment and I don't have to get offended. I don't have to get offended by it. And I think that's the main point of God's resiliency. It's to be unoffendable. It's to be unoffendable by the world. That's, that's the power of the Spirit, when you are unoffendable by the world. Unoffendable without becoming insensitive or apathetic. That's what I mean by we're, we're, we're not unaffected. We still have an affect. We still have emotion. We still care. We still want to help. We still have compassion. But in the midst of that compassion and that care, ultimately we are unoffendable. And what's so interesting to me about this resiliency that I think God is calling us to, this unoffendable heart, it's fascinating because I feel like it just goes so counter to the world and it really irritates the powers of the world, because it just seems like the world really, really wants to offend me. It does. It just, it tries so hard to offend me all the time. It just seems like I see so many things that seem designed to shock me, to shock my moral senses. There are so many things that seem intended to get a reaction from me, you know? There's, there's big movements that seem orchestrated to enrage me, to just get me enraged. And you've seen these bumper stickers. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's right. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, that means I have to be angry all the time. I don't want to be angry all the time. Too bad, the world says. Too bad. And so we end up in this really weird place where if we're not angry, and heaven forbid, if we maybe even have a little bit of joy... That's somehow scandalous. Isn't that weird? It's so weird. And, you know, and I have to acknowledge that my personality comes into how I see this because I've always been kind of the class clown. I've always been the guy who looks at the monster and tries to reveal the clown shoes underneath, you know? I've always been that guy. And, and I have to acknowledge that sometimes, sometimes the monsters are very real. Sometimes there are no clown shoes. Sometimes it's, it's real evil. And, and so sometimes I have to acknowledge that I need shock and I need anger. And I think that anger can even be really good. Uh, I, I've, I've had a great year reading this year. <laughs> I'm way ahead on my reading goals. And uh, I, I've been reading uh, uh, some work by Dominique Gilliard and Michelle Alexander's book on the incarceration problem. And both of these writers talk about the racial bias in our justice system. Uh, I, I read uh, uh, James Cone's book on, on lynching in America and the role that the black church and the white church played in lynching. And it, it made me mad. 
It did. And I've been reading about patriarchy, sex trafficking, climate change, pollution, slave labor, microplastics in the ocean, poverty, industrial farming, puppy mills, government corruption, gun violence, drone bombing, dead privacy, <laughs> pipelines through Indian reservations, homeless encampments, inflation, and on and on and on and on. Anger can be godly, but I am not God. Uh, there are infinite sources of anger, but I am not infinite. I am finite. The monsters are very real, but I am just one guy. I don't have enough anger to deal with all of these monsters. Anger, I think, is very important. It, ser- it serves a really great purpose. I think anger is really good at getting our attention about a problem. But if we hang on to the anger and just use anger as an end in itself, it becomes a distraction. What happens, I think, is that anger ultimately prevents us from stopping the very things that prompted the anger to begin with. Because when we get angry, well, first of all, you activate the, the amygdala, and the amygdala can't solve a problem for sure. The amygdala just wants to fight or run. That's all the amygdala wants to do. And by activating the amygdala, it simultaneously shuts down the frontal cortex, which is where we solve problems. And so anger is not good as a solution. It's good at raising our awareness, but if we don't let it go, we'll never solve the problem. And so ultimately, anger by itself doesn't really do anything. And I think really, I should have probably done this sermon before Cedric's, because I think what anger should do for us is it should trigger us to take Cedric's message seriously from last week. Anger should prompt us towards civic engagement. Anger should prompt us to do something. Uh, We should be angry and let that anger go as we grab some type of action to help. Pick up a shovel, pick up a book, learn more. Whatever it is that we need to do, that's what anger should lead us to is action. Anger by itself doesn't do anything. On top of which, there's so many things in the world that try to prompt us to be angry, and they're not nearly as noble as some of these things. You know, they don't make us angry about racial injustice. They don't make us angry about pollution. They make us angry just to get a reaction so that we click on the links. Or we give our attention to some organization or to some hotshot thought leader. Or they raise awareness for their own platform and their own brand or whatever. And anger gets used against us. Anger gets used to manipulate us. In fact, there's a thing, this is real. It's called outrage marketing. And companies will do this. They will, um, they will propose a very provocative, controversial post that's designed to offend certain people. And what they'll do is they'll take this post and they'll do a cost-benefit analysis. And if the numbers come out all right, they'll say, yeah, run it. And the idea is that if this post offends people, those people who are offended in their righteous indignation, they will take that post and they will share it with their family and friends and their followers and they'll say, look at how evil this is. This is the problem of the world. And and, and they can show off how morally righteous they are as they're spreading this company's message for free, basically. That's outrage marketing and that's a real thing. And, you know, the people get offended and they get outraged and they threaten to boycott, but they hardly ever actually do. They hardly ever actually boycott. And sometimes the company will come out and issue an apology. Sometimes they won't, depending on what the numbers say. How will this affect our brand? And the whole thing is uh, just manipulative. It's using our righteous anger against us. 
In fact, uh, if you, you probably are familiar with uh, uh, Radio Shack. It was this little electronic store. It used to be in every strip mall in the country you'd find a Radio Shack, and you can buy a little adapter or a wire or whatever you needed, a battery. Well, they went bankrupt, and, um, and their brand and their social media were purchased, and now Radio Shack, you'll never guess, Radio Shack is now a cryptocurrency. <laughs> You can't make it up. It's, it's now a cryptocurrency. And what these people are doing to raise awareness for their new cryptocurrency is they are tweeting and posting these very provocative posts about drug use and, and so forth. And, and it, people are getting offended, and it's making the news, and it's free advertising is what it is. And what's really sad about this is that Christians seem particularly vulnerable to this type of manipulation. It's so maddening. I mean, you probably remember just a couple years ago, Christians were losing their minds because Starbucks removed Merry Christmas from their little red cups. Look at all the publicity that Starbucks got because they removed Merry Christmas. And all of these Christians were just doing free marketing for Starbucks. Starbucks is doing fine right now, by the way. Starbucks is doing really, really well. Uh, and here's, here's the scary thing. I've known a lot of marketers, and there's, there's some, you know, some great... Great minds in marketing, of course. But they're just people. And, and if they can use our anger against us, how much more so can Satan use our anger against us? How much more so can the principalities and powers use our anger against us? And, and what strikes me so sad is that, man, the principalities and powers have always, always, always done the same thing. They have always tried to divide and conquer people. And the way they do that is they compel us to pick a side and get us to be enraged at the other side. That's the way they've always done it, from the very beginning. And what's sad is that the Bible has always, always, always tried to protect believers from this type of manipulation. And it's no secret that the world and the principalities and powers, they want something from us. They want to use us for something. And God wants to use us for something different. And I, I'm grateful being here at Woodland Hills. Uh, Greg has always, for 20 years now, he has emphasized this point that, look, we have to realize that we are in a war. But our war is against principalities and powers and these oppressive systems. It's not against one another. And I just think that's so central. Because the world will always try to convince us and bend us to think that our war is with one another. And there's a lot of ways that the world does this. There's just a lot of ways. One way that I've been thinking about lately is this. I feel like one of the strategies that, that the enemy uses to get us into these silos, into these camps where we become enraged with one another, I think part of the strategy is to get us to buy into a fantasy about the future. And what I mean by that is that our heads get filled with these very emotional images about what might happen to humanity, what might happen to the world. And so you have like stories like movies and TV series like Star Trek and Tomorrowland and Black Panther and uh, Mad Max and Terminator and Children of Men. That's a dark one. <laughs> uh, that's a dark movie. Be careful with that one. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale, Hunger Games. These are all kind of like these futuristic movies. This is what's going to happen to us. And some of them uh, offer us like a very tantalizing picture of the future. And some of us, a very terrifying picture of the future. And I think what happens is uh, we want these utopian futures, and we want to avoid these dystopian futures. And, and I believe, I think, I suspect, that there is a 
utopian story and a dystopian story for every single personality type and every single value structure out there. We all have a utopian story that we are drawn to and we all have dystopian stories that we want to avoid. I believe that. And look, if you really value liberty, there are utopian stories about liberty and freedom being fully realized. And there is also a corollary dystopian story about big government or some oppressive authoritarian regime that constricts your freedom. Or maybe uh, you love technology and there are movies and shows that show us the power of technology and how technology will save humanity. But then there's Terminator. <laughs> there's movies where they show us what's scary about technology. And maybe you want um, a community of peace and you want a community where there's security. Uh, and there's utopian stories about that. But there's also corollary dystopian stories where there's anarchy and lawlessness. And I just think that, man, there is a utopian and a dystopian story for every personality type, for every value structure, for every fear. We have something to serve you. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this, I don't think. Because I, we see Jesus doing the same thing. He's casting a vision of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. John the Apostle does the same thing in the book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul does. Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was possibly one of the best kind of vision casting uh, sessions ever. There's nothing really inherently wrong. In fact, I think that any meaningful revolution, we have to have a vision for what we're working toward. I think that's essential. And yet, this is why this is so tricky because I also think that there's this great potential for evil here. I think that something funny is happening with all of this. Uh, I think that somehow we get these utopian visions and these dystopian visions in our head and we sort of become like these amateur social engineers, you know, where we, we're, we're trying to get society toward the utopian vision that we like and away from the dystopia that we don't like. And, and so every encounter that we meet is an opportunity to move people closer to our utopias and away from our dystopias. And so we just kind of nudge. We're always trying to nudge people toward this uh, objective. And now it seems to me that so many of my interactions, it's so different than it used to be. Now it just feels like so many of my interactions, they just kind of drip with persuasion tactics. And it just feels like people have agendas now. You can't just have a conversation over a cup of coffee. There's just all of these agendas that you have to be aware of. And, and there's always this compulsion to take a side on something and, uh, or to join a cause. And the causes are usually good. And, and the issues that we want to take a side on are important. And, and so, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But underneath the surface, it just seems like we're all walking around with a carrot and a stick. You know, we're all like these amateur armchair behaviorists. And we're trying to influence everyone silly. You know, it just feels like we, we have these rewards and punishments that we're using to get people to be the way that we want them to be. And so if people comply, if they do something that coheres with our pathway toward our utopia, we shower them with praise and likes and retweets. And if they fail to comply, well, we got to teach them a lesson. And that's when we attack with humiliation and cancellation and sometimes even worse and what happens, I think, is that community becomes sort of gamified. It becomes sort of like a game. And we have points. We have how many followers do you have? How many likes did you get? How many retweets do you have? In fact, man, you know, the Supreme Court last week made a really big decision. 
And no matter what side you're on, it's going to hurt some people. And it's an important decision. And, and what really hurts me is watching people's reactions. People were reacting like they scored a touchdown. You know, it's a game. They're, score, they're celebrating, even though people are going to be hurt by this. And, and some people are going to be helped too, maybe. But it's just that gamification that I think reveals something really dark about what's going on. It's just this feeling like it's okay to do something if it gets me closer to my utopia. As long as it's legal. And maybe sometimes if it's illegal. As long as it gets us closer to our objective. The ends ultimately justify the means. If we can get to that utopia, it doesn't matter if we have to step on some people along the way. And some people, I tell you, are really good at this game. <laughs> They're just really good at it. Uh, Bill Doherty, a few weeks ago on the panel here, God, just, I love this guy. He, he said it so well. He called them conflict entrepreneurs. That's such a great word for it. And there's many of these, and I can name some names, but I'm not going to. But they're really good at policing these issues and making their opponents look foolish. And, and they're good at drawing lines and telling you who belongs and who doesn't. And they profit off of this. They get all sorts of followers. And sometimes I'm kind of envious of it. Other times I'm thankful that I'm not good at that. But that's what a conflict entrepreneur is. And maybe there's nothing really wrong with that either. I don't know. But it just strikes me as sad because nobody seems to see the madness of it all. Nobody seems to see the absolute arrogance of these conflict entrepreneurs and the total profound lack of humility of anyone playing the game. You don't mind the arrogance as long as they're on your side. And nobody ever, ever admits that they're wrong. Nobody ever does that. And nobody notices how results-oriented the whole game is. We're just trying to get people closer to our utopias. We're just trying to get society the way that we want it. It's all results-oriented. The ends justify the means. And nobody recognizes that if you're playing a game like this, where the ends justify the means, that means that you're just a cog. You're just a pawn. And nobody ever realizes that. Nobody ever says, hey, maybe I have more dignity than this. Maybe I deserve to be treated better than a means to an end. Nobody ever says that. It's just all shuffled into the game. We don't even realize it. And sometimes, you know, the applause feels good and the pats on the back when we say something that coheres with the bigger agenda. That's great. But the whole time we know we better not step out of line <laughs> because there are consequences if we step out of line. That's not a good way to live, but that's how we all live. It's, it's, it's sad. And I guess... The one thing I want to say is this. The social engineers and the conflict entrepreneurs, if you take anything away, just know that they do not love you. <laughs> they don't love you. No matter how loud they applaud, they don't love you. Just try to disagree with them once and you'll see. They don't love you. They've never loved you. If you want love, you have to go someplace else. Church is a good example of one of those places, hopefully. And the other sad thing is that the social engineers and the conflict entrepreneurs, they've been around forever, and they've always done the same thing. They've always tried to divide and conquer us, and they've always tried to get us to take a side, to be offended, and to burn with rage and indignation. That's what they want us to do, just to burn with, that's power. And if they could use our indignation and our rage for their agenda, that's great. And so they want us to burn with rage and indignation. But I'm here to tell you that you do not have to burn with rage all the time. You don't. I think that God wants us to burn with a different kind of fire. 
God wants us to burn with agape love. And a lot of times that can feel the same as burning with rage. And people will even say, well, I'm angry because I love. But I think what happens is they deceive themselves. Uh, They're usually just angry. And what I'll say is that when people burn with rage and indignation, that can only lead to one place. It can only lead to strife, toil, and eventually it leads to isolation. If you're rageful at people all the time, eventually you're going to be alone. And Jesus saw this a long time ago. He says this in uh, Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12. This is the King James Version. He warns his disciples, he says, look at many people will be offended and they will betray one another. Canceled. And they shall hate one another and many false prophets, conflict entrepreneurs, shall rise and they will deceive many. And because of their iniquity, their ends justify the means behavior, it will abound and the love of many people will grow cold. Uh, and what I mean by this is that offendability, if you notice, it's, it's like this seed that grows into these many, many different evils. It starts with offendability and it ends with cold hearts, cold love, small, hard, cold hearts. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is that we either resist the social engineers and the conflict entrepreneurs or we end up alone with small, cold, hard hearts. But the good news is we have one teacher, Jesus. We don't have to answer to the social uh, engineers or the conflict entrepreneurs. The world wants to offend us, of course, But Jesus wants us to be unoffendable. The reason for this is because God is cultivating something else in us. God wants to use us for something very different than what the world wants to use us for. God is drawing us into a profound, powerful unity. A unity that's built on grace, joy, and rest. Grace which should appeal to us because we don't have to worry about being canceled. We don't have to worry about stepping out of line. And joy which is so scandalous in our world of anger, and rest, which should also appeal to us because social engineering is so exhausting. God is calling us into something different. The world wants us to burn with rage, but to participate in what God is doing, we got to burn with a different kind of fire. We need a slow-burning fire, a fire that's hot enough to follow Jesus. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.23. He says, When they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. My question is, do I have a fire hot enough to keep me from retaliating? Do I have a fire of love hot enough to keep me from hostility? Even when I'm suffering, Do I have a fire that's hot enough to trust God with my urges for retaliation and for vengeance and for justice? It takes a special kind of fire to follow Jesus. The fire of rage just isn't special enough. That's not going to do it. You need a different kind of fire. It takes a special kind of fire to live out Paul's teaching in Colossians 3.13. Paul says, make allowances for each other's faults. In other words, cut each other some slack. Forgive anyone who offends you. It takes a special kind of fire to obey Peter in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Love covers a multitude of offenses. 
Notice how this fire, this special kind of fire, it begins with this spark of unoffendability. It's interesting because last week in Cedric's sermon, he stated his, a bit, uh, his uh, 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 position on abortion, which I thought was very courageous. <laughs> uh, and it got a reaction and some criticism. But what's really interesting is that the most passionate criticism that I saw came from someone who agreed with him. Isn't that weird? The most passionate criticism was somebody who agreed with Cedric's position. And what the guy was passionately criticizing was that Cedric was too humble about it. Uh, Cedric was too open-minded. Cedric lacked enough rage. That was the primary criticism. And it all just reminds me of exactly what Jesus was saying. Uh, For some people now, it's not enough to agree with me. Now the scope has narrowed. Our love has gotten smaller. Now you must have enough rage. The bar has been raised. It's not enough to be in the same silo as me. You also have to be as high as me in the silo. It's not enough to be in my tribe. You also have to dance like me in my tribe. And what's sad is that we don't even sense that our love is narrowing like this. We don't even sense that our hearts are shrinking and hardening. But they are. They are. And the more we give in to the social engineers and to the conflict entrepreneurs, and the more we play this ends justify the means game, the smaller and harder our hearts will get. And the dimmer our flame will get as well. So what do we do? How do we get this unoffendable fire? I I think uh, it comes back to GAP again. GAP is sort of this acronym that we've been using for this series, uh, and, and it kind of summarizes this idea of how do I get from where I am to where God wants me to be? How do I cross the gap from here to Christ-likeness? And so each letter stands for something. So the G stands for get all of your life from Christ. In order to have this special kind of unoffendable fire, we always, always, always have to get our life from Christ. We can't get life from the retweets and the likes and the applause from the conflict entrepreneurs or, or the social engineers. We have to get our life from Christ. In order to be beyond offendable, to be unoffendable, uh, well, this means that I can welcome criticism without fearing diminishment. That's powerful. It's powerful because, first of all, I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But no matter how imperfect I am, God's love for me is perfect. I exist in this perfect, unsurpassable love. I mean, I am bought with God's own blood. What in the world could possibly offend me? And when I live in that, that's when I start to be unoffendable. And I become immune to the manipulations of the principalities and powers. And it helps, of course, to be in a community of others who also strive to get their life from Christ and who also can see you the way that God sees you. That helps a lot. That's a big part of it. The A stands for agree with God that everyone you meet was worth Jesus dying for. In other words, everyone you meet has unsurpassable worth. That means that nobody is a means to an end. That means we have to stop social engineering and we have to start treating people as an end in themselves and to love each person as a person with unsurpassable worth. It's true that we believe that love will change the world. Nothing can change the world like love can. We believe that here. But that's not why we love. We don't love because it's a stepping stone toward our utopia. That's not why we do it. We love because people are lovable. We love because God shows us that they are worth dying for. Uh, 
And the fact is, is that if I meet somebody who's worth Jesus dying for, guess what? They're also worth my mercy, my tolerance, my grace, my affection. The P stands for pray for your enemies. Look again at how Paul motivates us to forgive and tolerate one another in Colossians 3.13. He says, Make allowances for one another for your faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Why should we do this? Well, Paul says, Because the Lord forgave you. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that you have something in common with your enemies. Deep down, there's something that you share with your enemies. And when you pray for your enemy you are acknowledging that deep thing that you share. You share the fact that both of you need grace, tolerance, and forgiveness. And when you pray for your enemy, you're acknowledging that. But you're doing more than that too. When you pray for your enemy, you're also pushing back against the fraud of of divide and conquer agendas. You're pushing back against all of that. You're refusing to be divided just because you disagree. To pray for your enemy, it also, it diffuses all of those urges that kind of swell up to retaliate against your enemy and to ruin your enemy. And that's important because retaliation just tends to amplify hate. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said this about retaliation. He said, it just never ends. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody has to have a little sense. The strong person is the person who can finally cut off the chain of hate. Dr. King said this in his sermon on loving your enemy. And here's the thing. Uh, Dr. King was representing people who have far, far, far greater justification for being offended than little old me. And so if this teaching applies to the people that he was representing, it applies to me tenfold. And so I ask, do I have a fire hot enough to stop me from retaliating? Do I have a fire hot enough to cut off the chain of hate? Do I have a fire hot enough to stand up to the divide and conquer tactics of our social engineers and our conflict entrepreneurs? In closing, it should be obvious that this special kind of fire, it comes from a special kind of heart. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 5.5. He says, God's love is being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So I ask this, what sort of heart have we each lifted up to God as the Holy Spirit is pouring God's love into us? We're holding up our heart. What kind of heart are we holding up? Uh, Ezekiel promises this. It's also kind of a warning. He says this in Ezekiel 18.31. He says, Rid yourselves of all of your offenses and fashion yourselves a new heart. Isn't that great, this idea that we can fashion our own hearts? So I ask you, what kind of heart have we fashioned for ourselves? Have we fashioned the small, hard heart of social engineering where God's love, this is my own imagination, God's love is being poured onto our social engineered heart and it just kind of splashes on the hardness of it and dribbles down the side? Or have we fashioned for ourselves the strong, yet soft, merciful, tolerant, unoffendable heart that God is calling us to? Because that is a heart that is vast and dynamic enough to take in a whole lot of God's love. 
If you're planning on coming next week, please let us know if you have kids so that we can prepare uh, and get some volunteers ready. Um, we have prayers. If you have any prayer requests or any prayer needs, definitely come forward after the service here. You can also pray online. Uh, Shauna and I will be on the MuseCast on Tuesday. I had to cut out a whole bunch of stuff from this, and so I'm going to bring some of that to uh, the Tuesday MuseCast. Uh, Thank you very much for being here, and um, I just pray that you have a blessed week. And, and just think about uh, what kind of heart you're fashioning for God. Because God wants to pour his love in, and we build the receptacle. So let's see what we can do. I love worshiping and seeking God with you, and I will see you soon.